welcome to the Daily Texans Politics and Pints. All proceeds from today's program will be donated to the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre. My name is Jordan Chenhar, I'm the Daily Texan Forum Editor. And I'm Daily Texan Editor-in-Chief Alexander Chase. So this past week seems to have calmed down a little bit from the, the hecticness of um, the Trump's, President Trump's first week in office with the notorious Muslim ban and um, all the White House-level shenanigans, power struggles, uh, Sean Spicer's press conferences, etc. The um, big headline of the week was the Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, a judge on the Tenth Circuit Court of Court of Appeals, and um, the slow confirmation process of a number of President Trump's cabinet appointees. So today we're going to talk about um, what the strategy should be for um, Democrats in the opposition going forward. Does it make sense to obstruct everything? Um, on what grounds can you find compromise? Does it make sense to compromise? How does the reality of life in Washington? Um, interact with how Democrats need to respond to their base, and we'll get into uh, how some of these broader themes will play out in the Texas legislative session, uh, which recently kicked off. Yeah, I feel like saying that things have calmed down is, you know, to say that the storm surge from uh, Hurricane Donald has come down from about 20 feet to about 15, but yes, things have calmed down. Um you know, I think that there are a few other things that will continue to slide under the radar. And you know, I, I warn people against uh, shifting their expectations too far and normalizing things like this week. Uh, advisor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, that is now her title, um, tried to ex- explain and uh, excuse or uh, you know defend the Muslim ban by saying that it was necessary to prevent um, something like the. Uh, the Bowling Green Massacre, um, which d- did not happen in, in, 2011, in 2011, um, two refugees uh, from Iraq um, did try to send weapons and money to um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but those efforts were really a, uh, a sting operation by the FBI, and you know they found some holes in the screening process. And I mean, I, th- I think that most people would say that we should you know, consider how our screening process is change. It needs to change one way or another. Um, I think that a lot of reasonable Democrats in the Senate and the House would say that uh, reviewing those and coming to a conclusion one way or another um, would be a healthy exercise. Um, in, in light of Kellyanne's embrace of alternative facts here, um, CNN actually just announced that they're um, not going to host her on... Um, on their program on Sunday, I think, the White House offered up Vice President Pence for uh, interviews with a number of major networks, excluding CNN. They offered Kellyanne Conway to CNN as a consolation prize, and CNN declined, saying that they don't want Kellyanne Conway um, coming on without any kind of pre-approval or um, without pre- um, they don't want Kellyanne Conway coming on live, basically at the same time that Mike Pence will be on these other networks. So it's it's a step in the right direction. You could say that might be just because they're they're annoyed that they're not getting access to the vice president. But still, it seems like the, the network is finally starting to get a little bit fed up with the stream of lies that's being told live on the air. 
one may say that they're uh, taking strides to uh, no longer be fake news. It's true. Or a failing pile of garbage. Ah, sad. Uh, anyways, the, the Democrats have kind of split in their reaction to uh, Judge Gorsuch's nomination with a number of them saying that he deserves some kind of a chance, uh, they should hold hearings, that they don't want to impede the um, normal po- process of checks and balances for too long. And other Democrats have uh, kind of strongly saying that they feel that the seat was stolen because, of course, the Republican Senate uh, refused to hold hearings on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, and they're going to try to obstruct for as long as possible. So it's difficult to see how long the opposition can hold out when it's divided itself on this issue. And what do you think the end game is here? What what can Democrats realistically hope to accomplish? Well, I'm not going to say that there is necessarily a unified end game. Um, and, and I think that part of that stems from the fact that, uh, you know, for one, there's not, you know, a DNC chairman guiding them. The, the, the leadership is kind of... Uh, still um, built to react to the 2000 to 2006 uh, Bush years rather than the Trump years, and that's that's what they have experience with. And these are different situations. So, I, you know, before I try to come up with some sort of answer to that, I think that the reason that people like you and I are asking that question is because it's not obvious. And I think the reason for that is because uh, the Democratic Party leadership is not necessarily the people who are I think the Democratic Party leadership is uh, trying to fight a different war than the one they're in, to a degree. Um, that said, I think that uh, the end game, reasonably here, should be to you know to mitigate damage, while at the same time ensuring that uh, individually all the people who are currently you know in seats, I'm sure they all want to make sure that they're elected again, 2018, 2020, and uh, 2022, depending on you know which seat they're filling. Um, and I think that we can't ignore the fact that these people are trying to be reelected while at the same time understanding that their party and possibly things they stand for are becoming obsolete. And Republicans are doing some of the same things. Um, that said, I, I think that some people in some of the safest seats who don't really have to worry about you know, being primaried or losing their general you know, or taking some of the boldest stands um, probably because they want to move up in the ranks. You know, we've seen people like uh, Kristen Gillibrand, who has voted for one of Trump's six uh, nominees who have come to a proper vote so far, and well, just like the rest of the Democrats will not vote for DeVos. So for her, the end game is, you know, attempted extra- obstruction, but obstruction also as a sort of like ethos. Um, you know, she's voted against people who were... Approved by margins where the the winning side, if you will, had more than ninety votes. I, I so I first people like her. I, I think it's not purposive in terms of like actual policy. I, I don't think that you know anyone who voted against Nikki Haley for UN ambassador is doing that because they think that Nikki Haley is is a, is a great threat to the, the American project. I think they're just doing that to say they voted for, against as many people as possible. Yeah, that's a good point about the kind of the decentralized uh, power structure of the party right now. Um, it's unusual for, firstly, for after having had this a sitting president for eight years, going out and now trying his best to um, 
defer to the new administration because that's historically been the tradition in the U.S. Um, it's an important part of democracy for the old president not to criticize everything the new president is doing. Um, and Obama is trying to hold to that as best he can. But Hillary Clinton has not really reemerged from hiding and it's unclear how much credibility she has within the party at this point. Um, and there's no head of the DNC yet. So you're right, there's isn't really anybody who's calling the shots. You have Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer or House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Um, ce celebrity senators like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, trying to pull the party to the left. So it seems like everybody just kind of has different ambitions and are reacting in, uh, as opposed to reacting as a unified front, reacting in ways that make the most sense for them personally. Uh, I think that on top of that, you even have some senators who are not necessarily going along with everything else and either trying to, you know, get some of their own bits of their agenda passed or, you know, curry some favor. I mean, Joe Manchin and Heidi Heidkamp and uh, Mark Warner actually uh, considered a pretty mainline um, Democrat from Virginia have all voted for all of Donald Trump's uh, picks so far. I mean, I do understand that they will vote against DeVos and, you know, that little bit of fact will go away. But, you know, I think there are people who are defecting a lot less. Um, and, and I think that, you know, if you're the junior senator in Virginia, I could understand you wanting to go along with a lot of the foreign policy machinations because your state relies so heavily on it and dissent potentially meaning people lose a lot of jobs in different ways. And it means, that, you know, if you're the senator from New York. Um, and I, I think that those are those distinctions are necessary to understand. I mean, uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia is going to vote like a Republican once in a while, just like Rand Paul is going to vote against what he sees as overreaches of government. He uh, voted against uh, Mike Pompeo, the, uh, nom the nominee to become the head of the CIA. Right. So... Oh. Rand's a little different, though, because Rand's not reacting to electoral pressures in the same way that Democrats like Manchin and Heitkamp, who are up for re-election in deeply, deeply red states in 2018, are. Rand, Rand just kind of does his own thing. He always has. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. I, I think that you know Massachusetts does elect Republicans to national, I mean, to statewide office. Um, you could come up with a situation in which you could imagine Elizabeth Warren worrying about getting uh, beat out in a general election by a, a very moderate Republican. But I think her, her name brand is too strong at this point. Yeah, and I imagine like Rand Paul probably feels like he has a pretty strong, you know, support a group of supporters in Kentucky and a big enough profile that he probably isn't worried about, you know. Trump voters, uh, you know, kicking him out of office either. Uh, I imagine people in the House will probably be a little bit less likely to stake out those sorts of things because there are fewer celebrity congressmen um, and women, and uh, their terms are all up in 2018. So I, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, and I think that, you know, the Republican Party is really, really good at whipping votes right now with it. Democratic parties, uh, not. <laughs> I would love to hear what kind of Godfather level threats Mitch McConnell is making, especially on the uh, Betsy DeVos nomination. Oh yes. Uh, given that two Republicans have already defected, that means that the Senate would deadlock fifty-fifty. 
which would leave the Republicans with just enough support um, via Mike Pence's tiebreaker. Yeah. To get it confirmed. It, it seems like it, it's interesting that this is the case, but it seems like Democrats are kind of mounting this opposition to DeVos as their one symbolic uh, effort to tank a Trump nominee because um, they don't really have any power as the minority party. And they they realize that for some of the nominees are just kind of generic Republicans, conservatives who they don't necessarily agree with, but who they think are vaguely qualified to do the job. Um, that's why Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren both voted for Ben Carson. They said they were impressed enough with his testimony and afraid enough of who might get appointed in his stead were his nomination um, to go down. Yeah, I, I feel like that's the reason that at least a few Democrats were able to vote for Tillerson. Yeah, Tillerson... Um, Jim Mattis and John Kelly, the Defense and Homeland Security nominations, both got a, a decent amount of bipartisan support. Should note that in a recently released uh, uh, White House fact sheet, uh, Kelly was listed as a uh, second uh, Defense Secretary, and that Australia had a president. So uh, it's just a you know it's an alternative fact. Yeah, I, I, the uh, the Senate is existing in some sort of predictable reality here. Um, it, and, you know, assuming these roles are going to, you know, function like they usually have and that normal Republicans versus normal Democrats are going to do normal jobs. I I think that we should be careful to predict that, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is going to do anything at all in the next four years. No, and, the, um, and HUD is one of those departments, um, just from um, what a lot of kind of D.C. longtime insiders um, say that where um, the civilian bureaucracy drives policy much more than the political appointees, it's really, really difficult to steer HUD in a different direction. And education is kind of similar just because it's such a, the officer doesn't really have that much power at all, which might be why Republicans are so willing to defect on Betsy DeVos's nomination, that and the fact that she just sounded so aggressively unqualified in her testimony. I think aggressive is the right term there. I mean, uniquely doesn't, quite fit because we're finding all sorts of people who seem uniquely unqualified for their jobs. No, but she, she was mind-bogglingly unqualified and has never worked in uh, school in education policy, never worked in a school, never attended public school. Um, her um, only real qualification is donating lots of money to school voucher causes, um, but she wasn't involved in shaping any of the policy for them. She just donated a lot of money. Yeah, um, I, I and also donating a lot of money to Republican senators. Mm -hmm. She did also make the the nice suggestion that schools should keep guns around to ward off grizzly bear attacks. So she did provide one of the the many decent memes that have come out of the, the first few weeks of the Trump administration. The the meme makers are enjoying a bit of a renaissance here. Yeah, yeah. Now, to get back to your point, though, that you said that, you know, as the minority party, the Democrats don't really have a lot of power. Um We've seen a lot of the traditional ways that a minority power can exercise political dissent kind of, I don't know, slough off and just fall to the wayside in the most uh, disturbing ways. You know, um, Democrats who would normally just not go to committee meetings to uh, keep votes from happening are seeing the rules rewritten um, as they go to take away all of the different ways that the minority party can flex its uh, very limited muscle. Um, and with uh, Gorsuch nomination you know, needing, um, needing majority of votes, but, uh, being, you know, needing 60 votes to get to the floor. Yeah. I'd have to avoid filibuster. 
Um, it's going to be interesting to see um, what powers they do have um, maybe be rewritten the wrong way. And I think that's one of the big questions with regard to Gorsuch, Gorsuch is not necessarily him himself, but also, but also like, will the filibuster um, die with his nomination? Yeah, that's the, the interesting thing to watch. Um, the um, the Democrats actually killed um, the filibuster for most judicial appointees uh, in 2013, 2014, uh, back when they were still in the majority in the Senate, uh, because uh, Republicans were obstructing all of Obama's um, judicial nominees. So um, there are a lot of Democrats who have kind of floated out the idea that they should hang on to the filibuster as long as possible and vote for cloture on um, on Gorsuch so that if and when Trump does appoint another Supreme Court justice, they'll they'll have the filibuster to fall back on. Um uh, that that seems like a very misguided approach. I don't think the Republicans are going to keep the filibuster around the second the Democrats try to use it. You, it's not like you can put off that that fight and gain anything out of it. I think the the most cogent argument I've heard is that uh, Democrats should keep the filibuster not for a second sco- a Supreme Court nominee so much as um, they should just keep it for a, maybe another non Supreme Court fight. Or basically, they should just hope that in the process, um, you know, President Trump's uh, approval rating and his entire, you know, his entire um, administration's general approval will tank so far that um, either, you know, um, if they are filibustering, uh, say, a bill that he really wants passed in two to three years and uh, the public is entirely in support of them. I mean, if the Republicans take that away, they'll kind of seal his fate and really, really put them in a better place. And this isn't necessarily the best time to pick that fight. Um, while also gambling that there's not another Supreme Court seat that needs to, you know, be filled. It's a fair point, which raises the other question as to whether or not any legislation is even going to hit President Trump's desk. Uh, and if it does, what it's going to look like. But that's a, a question for another time. Speaking of legislation, um, the the Texas uh, legislative session has been uh, kind of ramping up lately um, with some interesting bills that Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor, was promoted um, being debated in the Senate last week, SB4, um, which is modeled after Arizona's controversial immigration bill and lets police uh, indefinitely detain anybody who they suspect of being um, an illegal immigrant. Uh, got a decent amount, it passed committee uh, by a 7 to 2 vote but uh, generated a decent amount of public opposition. Over 500 people showed up to testify against the bill, saying that it um, restricts the ability of local um, of local police departments to faithfully carry out the laws of the city and prevent crime. Um, and uh, immigration advocates suggesting that it's inhumane to subject people to indefinite detention just because they can't show their papers. Uh, maybe their papers aren't on them. should note that the author of the bill... Um Slipped out of that uh, protest uh, pretty early the other night at the state capitol. Indeed, and to, to plug ourselves a little bit for more information on that, you should check out our forum page from last week where the director of the student chapter of the ACLU of Texas um, wrote about what um, the process for that bill has looked like and uh, how the ACLU has mobilized in opposition to it. Yes, yes. Um, 
yeah, I, I think that a moment like that uh, really should rock um, few uh, Democrats' confidence that they're showing up to protest, especially in Texas, means anything. I, I, I could see a situation in which it, it's just a rally the base, increased turnout sort of um, end goal, you know, with hope that the 2018 election will uh, inspire no hope in anyone who votes for people with the R next to their name, and that instead uh, you'll, you'll have massive turnout for those who want to stop uh, Republicans at any cost. But right now, it looks as if polling, especially in Texas, seems to indicate that uh, Texans are by and large for things like, you know, um, Muslim bans or, you know, immigration restrictions like SB4. So I, I, I want, um, I kind of want some people to be able to answer the question to which uh, if most voters are in favor of things like this, their constitutionality, morality, effectiveness as policy aside, you know, should moderate Texas um, congressmen and women or senators, say Cornyn, uh, be in favor of them? You know, I, I if if a poll if a poll shows that there's a, a plus five plus ten favorability for a Muslim ban in Texas, I see. I, I don't think Cornyn himself is necessarily going to like that, but you know, I. I wonder to the degree to which uh, his uh, campaign manager or his chief of staff uh, pushes him to oppose it a little bit less vocally than he otherwise would. Yeah, it's um, kind of gets at the heart of what uh, how elected representatives see their role in relationship to the public, whether they're supposed to be kind of trustees of public opinion, whether they're supposed to um, take basically the advice and consent of the electorate and then make their own decisions. Um, there are a lot of people who are a lot of senators and representatives who will justify supporting something that they don't personally agree with uh, by saying that the majority of their constituents do. And you can make a moral case for that just as strong as you can make a tactical case for it. Um, in the case of Texas, I think it'll, the person who's it'll be most interesting to watch is um, House Speaker Joe Strauss, who's historically uh, taken a much more moderate uh, tack, uh, avoided the populism of Dan Patrick and Greg Abbott and even Rick Perry during his time in office. Uh, there are a lot of bills that have historically been kind of quietly killed by Strauss for just not being in the interest of the Texas business community. And um, whether something like the, this immigration bill or the trans bathroom bill um, that Dan Patrick proposed, whether that um, whether Strauss is able to kind of maintain his um, ideological kind of pragmatism yeah in the face of this all of this increased attention and increased polarization will be uh, an interesting symbol of the kinds of battles that we should expect to see in state houses in the years to come yeah I mean, um speaker strauss i feel like is a, a voice that i want to hear more of during these next few months and that i feel like students um should want to hear more of i you know, there's often the problem in politics that the people who shout loudest end up being the ones that are people who are a little bit disconnected tend to think are, you know, standing in for the majority. But I, I suspect there are a good number of uh, members of the Texas House and Senate who uh, would fall more in line with Strauss than they would in Patrick. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of students who would never know that there are still uh, moderate, reasonable Republicans out there. Um, which is which is a shame, uh, you know. I, I feel like we 
when discussing these sorts of issues towards students, uh, um, kind of have a responsibility to sort through um, what politics can occasionally look like and what they actually are. Um, you know, I, I mean, if anyone from Speaker Strauss's camp is out there and would love to speak with us, uh, we would, I mean, he's the sort of person we'd love to have on a show like this or writing for us. They would very much be a friend of the pod. <laughs> um, but kind of aside from that, I think that, you know, these sorts of vaguely ethical queries are um, themselves uh, indicative of someone how, of how someone will choose to govern. And, uh, you know, if someone is willing to ignore the fact that uh, Texans are by and large against building a border wall and then able to justify using polling on, you know, a ban uh, on uh, non-citizen Muslim immigration as a way to, you know, justify their vote, I wouldn't consider that person to be acting on conscience or to be consistent. I, I think that they would just be willing to, you know, conjure up whatever bullshit is necessary to do what they to get done what they want to do to do. Yeah, uh, but I think that's something that you could apply to politicians of of both parties. And that oh, oh yeah, <laughs> far predates um, the uh, chaos and unpleasantness and democratic decline um, that's accompanied the rise of Donald Trump. That's just it's been there forever um i think that what this i feel like what these issues bring to the table that's a little bit different is the uh the sorts of policy stances that are getting uh close to net zero favorables are not ones that would have been anywhere close to uh above water um five ten years ago right so it's, it's a worrying trend to keep an eye on but uh also i think the the fights that are the most worth fighting are the ones that um, distinguish between normal and abnormal types of policies. Um, yes, yes. And I think that's the, the approach that, so a, a kind of a lowest common denominator approach that it should be pretty easy for Democrats to generally coalesce around. Um, and the, on the national level, you've seen that with the confirmation, bipartisan confirmation of folks like Mike Pompeo, who's uh, ideologically in line with Tea Party conservatives, as opposed to the um, opposition that you see to people like Tom Price, the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary designate, who uh, has been embroiled in the controversy whereby he was allowed to purchase uh, discounted stocks in a pharmaceutical or in a biomedical company in exchange for passing a law that would help that company's bottom line and raise their stock prices, or somebody like Betsy DeVos, uh, who is abnormally, uniquely, aggressively uh, unqualified for the role to which she was nominated. So th those are the fights that. Um, folks seem to be picking and I think if we had to make one prediction that's least likely to be utterly and completely wrong within <laughs> the next week um, it would be that that's the, um, the easiest way for Democrats to fight back and that's the approach that they're going to take yeah I, I would I would hope that's the case um, I mean obviously we've talked about things are going to be scattered and people aren't making the best decisions uh, or making the same kinds of decisions but I mean insofar as our goals here are to embarrass ourselves most um a statement like that really seems out of line for our principles as well yeah and speaking of um abnormality and embarrassing stuff um there hasn't been a whole lot of activity on jill stein's twitter feed lately um which is unfortunate because we we need some kind of natural conclusion to our show and we just don't have it at this point yeah. so if you have any ideas um we're we're all ears open to suggestions in the meantime um, assuming that we still have uh, a planet to live on next week, we'll be back. Um, 
talking about something, um, hopefully a little less serious. This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan and hosted by Alexander Chase and Jordan Shenhar. And the music was by Randy Wachtler. Be sure to check back next week for our next episode. And for more news, go to dailytexanonline.com.